All right, um, welcome everyone to um, the StuFact discussion with Dr. Robert Cook Deegan. This is part of our student faculty lecture series, and this is the third event of the semester. Um, Dr. Cook Deegan teaches a class on responsible genomics, um, and he's heavily involved with the IGSP, so he'll discuss a little bit about some of the work he does, but also um, dis discuss some stuff about student life at Duke and answer any questions you might have. Um, keeping with the um, spirit of our StuFac events, this is meant to be a discussion, so might as well get started, Dr. Cook-Deegan. So do you guys mind if I, I'd like to know who I'm talking to, so I know, I knew about a third of the people on the website, but um, I don't know most of you. You're, you're mainly new faces, because the people who do know me, except for Amanda, no better than to show up if I'm going to be giving a talk. Um, or they're finishing a paper for your class. Yeah, that's right. So Varen is, is finishing a paper for his class tomorrow, because um, our final projects are due tomorrow. So if you don't mind, if you could, why don't we just go around and just give me a little bit about you that you think I should know, so I can know who I'm talking to. Um, I'm Julie. I'm a senior chemistry major. And, like I was and where are you from? Orlando. Did you know Joe Poor? Okay. I'm Alex. I'm also a senior uh, from the Midwest, Indiana, and I'm doubling in psychology and history. And I'm a Sagittarius. <laughs> <laughs> and my horoscope is not 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 good this week. <laughs> I'm Lauren. I'm a freshman from Atlanta, and I'm history major. Where do you live? And. Fayetteville, just below Atlanta. And where do you live on campus? What, oh, which dorm? Oh, sorry, Randolph. Okay. Is Julie here? Who's your faculty in residence? Uh, That's a good question. Is it Julie? <laughs> I'm Kevin, I'm a freshman. I'm from um, Central New Jersey, and I'm also studying history. You already know? What? You oh, already know? More or less. And where are you on East Campus? That's it. That, that's Martin? Mm -hmm. I'm Patrick. Um, I'm from near Orlando. Yeah. I don't know what I'm going to major. I'm also invested. And did you know Joe Four? No. Joe graduated last year, and he was from the Orlando area. Right now he's teaching in the Marshall Islands. He's wow, starting cool. at uh, University of Virginia Law School in September. Hi, I'm Carmen. I'm a junior psychology major from Michigan. Hi, my name is Jessica. I'm also a junior and I'm a biology major um, from Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Cool. Um, I'm Dave. I'm a senior uh, philosophy econ double major uh, hailing from Toronto. Did you look at the PPE program? I did. I did. I, I did the um, the gateway course. Uh, had a lot of fun with that, but I ended up uh, figuring that if, if someone was looking at my resume and they saw philosophy, economics, and a certificate in philosophy, economics, and politics, they would have been like, "Okay, what what does that mean?" So I ended up deciding to take my electives somewhere else. Okay. Cool. Hi, I'm Dennis. I'm a senior. I'm doubling in BME and and EE. And I'm from Maryland, and I did remember Joe for because he 
Maybe this will show up on the podcast, but I think... Well, there you go. It's on the tape. Joe, what do you think? Um, I know I, you, Amanda. Yeah. Um, um, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for volunteering. Yeah. Um, my name is Jessica. I'm from New York City, and I'm a biology major pre-dental. Biology major in what? I'm pre-dental. Pre-dental, Okay. I'm Peter. I'm a senior biology major from Reedsville, North Carolina, and I work in I work in Dr. Greg Ray's lab, who I think you worked with in the IGSP. Yeah. And I'm going to medical school next year for an MD PhD program. I can see. Almost You're a brave <laughs> man to wear that. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, I'm Catherine. Um, I just switched into public policy. I was VME. Um, uh, I live in Las Vegas. Um, and Which one? Oh, the uh, Las Vegas. Yep. Okay. Oh, um. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm Kathy, I'm a junior. I'm biology pre-med. I was actually in the focus program in when I was a freshman, the genome revolution one. So which year? Must have been... Oh, hi. Must have been the last year that I didn't do it. Who's, whose courses did you take in genome? I took Astrakhan's, um, I didn't take the bio one, and I took the English one. Is that Priscilla Wall? Yes. Okay. Um, hi, I'm Jose, and my major is uh, BAA in Spanish with a minor in chemistry, and I'm also pre-dental. I'm a junior. So pre two pre-dentals in the round table. <laughs> in the same family, yeah. no less. Wow. It'd be amazing. Hi, I'm Sashak. I'm a senior. Um, I'm an electrical and computer engineer from Kansas City. Um, Alyssa, I'm a junior. I'm engineering and philosophy, and I'm from Colorado. Engineering and philosophy. Now, how did that work? I don't know. I don't think I even knew that you could do that. Can you do an arts and sciences major and a BME? Uh, well, me I'm mechanical, but yeah, apparently. So, if you're masochistic, who are you in? Are you in Pratt or are you in Trinity? I'm in or Pratt. Both? Pratt, technically. And you can do an arts and sciences mm -hmm. major on top. Mm -hmm. Wow. So there are two of you that are doing double majors in engineering. Do you have any space for any elective? Mm -hmm. I'm only going to have three classes next semester. Whoa. <laughs> Don't rub it in. <laughs> <laughs> I'm underloading this semester. <laughs> uh, I'm Yvonne. I'm a senior majoring in BME from Portland, Oregon. And um, I was actually in your dorm freshman year. Uh, I'm James. I graduated last year. I'm studying mathematics in Cambridge right now, but it's visiting. You're hanging out back here? Yeah. Better weather. Which, which Cambridge? God, <laughs> 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 you could be in Cambridge today, yeah. though, except to be a lot colder. All right, and I'm Jason, yeah, senior uh, chemistry major. So are you the only two chemistry majors? Uh, uh, no, we have uh, another one, Arna. Yeah. And then we had Hillary. another one who graduated last year. Hillary. Oh, Hillary, yeah. yeah. So we, we actually have five seniors. Yeah. Yeah. No, three seniors. So, so with apologies to Amanda, who's heard this probably at least once before, um, I'll give you a five-minute bio, um, which will just allow you to, to give a, a little bit of purchase on it. And I, I'd actually be most interested in finding out your experience of living here in the round table. Um, because as I was telling some of you before, I was on the Campus Culture Initiative Committee
that made the recommendation that we should abolish all the selectives. Um, and I can, in fact I will, I'll give you a little bit of the, the argument that went on within the committee. Um, and uh, I'd be really, really interested in your perspectives on uh, what the consequences would have would have been and whether it's a good idea that we were saved from implementation of that recommendation. Because obviously it's not going to be implemented. Um, so anyway, I'm, I'm, um, I, I live in Alspa, as some of you know. Uh, I'm a, I've been there for five years now. I'm going to do one more year um, before I finish my faculty and residence. I came to Duke um, directly from Washington, D.C. Um, so this is actually my first academic job, although I taught Stanford undergrads. I did it very much as a part-time thing. I taught one course for Stanford students because they have a, a beautiful, wonderful facility up on Connecticut Avenue in Washington, D.C. And I would teach a course once a, once a night, three quarters a year. Um, but this is actually my first academic job. So I came to Duke because Duke was starting up the Institute for Genome Sciences and Policy. Um, sometime in 2000, 2001, something like that, when Duke did its last strategic plan. There was one that was just approved about a year ago. This is one that was approved probably six years ago. Duke had concluded that they kind of missed the genome revolution, and it was going to be a big deal, so they'd better do something about that. So that's why they decided to create the Institute for Genome Sciences and Policy. So some of you are actually working in labs as a consequence of the existence of IGSP, um, the Institute for Genome Sciences and Policy. My center, the institute has actually not turned into what it was written down to be on paper in that strategic plan. The, the basic spirit of the institute was to have a trans university, so we were supposed to be in both medical school and arts and sciences, engineering, divinity, law, business, etc. All of the schools were going to be part of the Institute for Genome Sciences and Policy. And this is one of these structures that Duke is trying to create space for interdisciplinary research. And they were creating it from scratch. Um, the center that Greg Ray directs is on evolutionary genomics. Um, it's not one of the centers that was originally proposed. S two of the centers that were originally proposed are no, never either never came to be or came to be. One of them was in IGSP and then got a divorce. Um, and one of the centers that was supposed to exist was going to be animal models of human disease. That one just never made sense. Um, and yet we've got a systems biology institute. Uh, we've got a, an evolutionary genomics institute. We've got a population and pharmacogenomics institute. Those three were never on paper in the original plan. So what happened is um, a group of us, a relatively small group of us, were hired early on after the institute was getting started. The center that I direct is Ethics, Law, and Policy. Um, and its function was, all of IGSP is supposed to link to the, the, to the whole university. Our center in particular was supposed to link to arts and sciences, the social sciences and humanities, law school, business school. Um, Divinity School and focus on how what was happening in genomics influenced the rest of the world and also how conceptions arising in the rest of the world influence how we think and what we do in genomics. 
so it's a two-way street. Um, I actually don't know all the people that were looked at for my job, um, so I don't know exactly why they picked me. Um, hey, Emily, how are hey, you? Hi. You can join us. I'm just doing my bio, so I'll be. You've heard this before. Yeah. <laughs> um. So the, the, the I was. I'll, I'm going to do a, like a, a short bio of myself. I spent this, those 20 years in Washington, in basically one kind of job. I went to Washington from a molecular biology lab. I'm a physician. My only degree is in medicine. Um. And, but while I was in medical school, um, in fact, I was, I, I was, compared to most of you, I was like not a very stable person um, when I was an undergraduate. I had three different majors. I started as an econ major um, because I wanted to do, I wanted to save the world because um, I'd worked in Guatemala when I was in high school and early college and thought that was the way to save the world. Is, through economic development. Um, I took one poli-sci course, got a C-plus in it, and that kind of cured me in the social sciences for the rest of my undergraduate career. Um, and I went into the hard sciences, went into chemistry via biology. <clears throat> I took one biology course, hated it. Um, did fine, but I hated it. And then I fell in love with organic chemistry. It's just bizarre. Um, <laughs> <laughs> And I, so I, I, I finished as a chem major, and uh, but in my senior year decided that because I didn't want to, because I didn't know what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. But I had figured out some things that I did not want to do for the rest of my life, and one of those was I spent a summer doing research, um, which I absolutely loved, but I found it incredibly lonely and not quite social enough for me. So I decided like the first two or three weeks of my senior year, I would bite the bullet and go pre-med. Although I never would have worn that shirt. <laughs> I, was not, I was not bold enough to, uh, to make it public. I was, I was a kind of a samizdat uh, uh, pre-med. But I, did, I went to medical school. I was really, really unhappy. I was uh, in the middle of applying for law schools, took the LSATs. Um, and the reason I was unhappy is because it was all the teaching in medical school, even now, even with all the changes that have been made, and there have been a lot of improvements made, but still in medical school, teaching pretty much sucks compared to what you're used to. And compared to teaching in law school or teaching in business school, where they take it very seriously, in medical school, the teaching tends to still be really low quality until you get onto the clinics, and then it's an apprenticeship, and it's really intense. Um, and highly variable, because it depends on who you get in that service that week. Um, but I was really not having a good time in medical school until um, a series of things all happened the last part of my, the very end of my freshman year. Um, one was we hit neurophysiology, neuropharmacology, and neuroanatomy, all three of which I totally loved. And so I got intellectually engaged. And also my girlfriend called me up and told me her father had been diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. And so I decided to do research on Alzheimer's disease starting that summer. And that's what kept me in medical school. For, I went to medical school because I knew what I didn't want to do, but I didn't know what I did want to do. Um, and it gave me a reason. Suddenly I had a research reason to stay in medical school. And that's what I did. 
my job as a medical student was to construct pedigrees to do genetic studies of a rare form of Alzheimer's disease that runs in families like Mendel's peas. It's an autosomal dominant trait, meaning if one of your parents is affected, you're at 50% risk. It goes down the line. So um, basically, what it was was a signal from nature that there was one broken gene associated with Alzheimer's disease in these rare families. And my job was to find those families and also get all the clinical information so that we could try to find where that broken gene was. This was the late 1970s. There were no tools for doing anything. This kind of work that we did um, today would take, once you, had the, once you had the clinical information and the family tree, it would take a week to do what it took us years and years and years to do in hunting for these genes, because we just didn't have the tools that were available. But that did give me a flavor for why genetics was important. Um, and I just happened to be in the right place at the right time as science and medicine were beginning to converge. And people were beginning to think about genetics as being important to things other than really rare diseases of children who had things like cystic fibrosis or phenylketonuria or galactosemia. These are rare conditions that generally tend to be referred to academic medical centers. And that's kind of what medical genetics was in the 1970s. And it was just in transition to realizing how incredibly powerful the technology for studying DNA and harnessing the power of studying DNA to computers. And all this stuff was just beginning to dawn. Um, so I basically, um, after having done that work for a few years uh, as a medical student, um, I, by the time I graduated, I decided I really, really wanted to do research. And in particular, I really wanted to do molecular biology. <coughs> so I did. Alzheimer's disease was not ready for the picking. It was not ripe fruit. We had all these beautiful pedigrees, but we had nothing to do with them because none of the tools existed. So I switched to a lab, and it was purely opportunistic. I went to the best lab that I could get into and it was doing this incredibly elegant work on the early history of oncogenes. It was in one of the labs that discovered a cancer switch. It's a single gene in a virus that affects chicken cells. That it's just unbelievably beautiful science of one gene. This is a virus that has four genes in it. One of those genes is a cancer switch. When it's active, you've got cancer in the cells. When it's inactive, you don't have cancer. One gene, cancer phenotype, incredibly elegant science. What does the gene do? It puts phosphate groups on proteins. It's a kinase. So this was the first of the kinases that was discovered associated with, with cancer. And I loved that science, did it for several years. And then my postdoc, the guy who'd been directing my postdoc, <coughs> um, got lured away. He got the Lasker Award and went off to Harvard. And here I was two years into my postdoc. I had no idea what I wanted to do. So I did just what I did when I was in going to medical school. I didn't have any idea what I wanted to do with the rest of my life, so I decided. But I knew what I didn't want to do, which was clinical medicine or pathology, which is what I was being trained to do. So I just kind of looked around. Um, and I took a job in Washington, DC, because it was advertised <coughs> in Science Magazine. I have no idea how I found it. I, I guess I was reading. I. I read Science and Nature every week, as, as you do when you're in that kind of an environment. And I think it just must have caught my eye because it was kind of the right time. Um, anyway, I ended up applying for a fellowship in Washington, D.C. 
and lo and behold, got accepted, went to Washington, and absolutely loved my job. For the first time in my life, I totally loved my job. And then for 20 years, I had the same kind of a job where I would be involved in issues related to science or technology or health or all three in some combination. But the work that we were doing was trying to filter information, gather information for people who were going to make decisions about policy. So um, the first six years I worked for a congressional agency called the Office of Technology Assessment that I hope you guys are going to hear about next year because I hope that either party, it doesn't matter whether McCain wins, Clinton wins, or Obama wins, I hope one of the three of them will see the light and bring this agency back. It was disbanded in 1995. Um, and I worked there for six years answering to basically congressional committees who, and congressional committees pass laws. That's what they do. That's what they're paid to do. And so they would ask us, please give us a study on blah, 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 blah. So human gene therapy, impacts of neuroscience, Alzheimer's disease. Um, and then the last project I worked on that was major at the Office of Technology Assessment was one on the Human Genome Project. The idea of the Human Genome Project hit in 1985, and Congress was trying to make a decision about whether there should be a Human Genome Project or not in 1986 and 1987. So why would Congress turn to an analytical agency for that? Well, because it was kind of a complicated topic. Moreover, there were two different agencies, the National Institutes of Health and the Department of Energy, that were kind of competing for leadership of this project, and there was kind of a dispute about whether to do the project in the first place, and if they were going to do the project in the United States, which of these two agencies should actually lead it. So I, because I was the closest excuse they had to a human geneticist at the Office of Technology Assessment, I became the project director for that. Um, and I wrote a report on that. And while I was writing the report, it became really obvious to many of us that this was a really, really cool historical case study of what was probably going to turn out to be an important science initiative. And here I had all these interviews with all these scientists and policymakers sitting in my files. And wouldn't it be cool to write a book about that? So that's what I did. I got a grant from the Sloan Foundation to write a book about it. Um, and that's called The Gene Wars. It's the only book that has ever come out with my name on it, although I've written about 20 or 30 books. They've all come out under the Office of Technology Assessment or the National Research Council. Um, this is the only one that has my name on it. Um, and it was really fun to write because it was all history. And it was all doing history with people, many of whom are still alive. Um, and got to do interviews and kind of find out how Dick hit Jane. It's really, really fun to write a book like that. Um, I then moved on and uh, I worked in a, in a bioethics think tank that was killed in an abortion crossfire between the House and the Senate and the liberals and the, and the conservatives um, in 1989. So I was on the street. I had four days notice. They basically said, we're not going to fund your agency. And Four days later, they couldn't pay me a paycheck. It would have been illegal to pay me. So I didn't have a whole lot of time to try to find a job. Um, while I was out hunting for a job, and I have to tell you, it wasn't salary that was worrisome. This is my first acquaintance with the US healthcare system. I was petrified of not having health insurance for my family. <coughs> and that was what actually I was most scared about for that period when I wasn't sure what my job was going to be. Fortunately, the uh, director of the NIH program, this guy named Jim Watson, 
some of you have probably had to read some of his papers um, about the double helical structure of DNA. Um, he was the head of the NIH genome program. He called me up and said, do you want to come work for us? So lo and behold, about a month after I was petrified that I didn't have a job, suddenly I get this incredible opportunity to go work with one of the world's most famous scientists on the Human Genome Project. Like, like Watson and Watson and Craig? Yeah. Okay. Wow. <laughs> I'm just checking. <laughs> 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 wow. I was like, is that the same Watson? Just yeah, yeah, me too. Ah, I, I wasn't sure if I should ask because it might be an embarrassing question. Yeah. <laughs> just like, no, but of course it's not. Did he just recently pass away or was that Crick? That's Crick. Crick died about 18 months ago or so ago. Uh, Watson got very famous last October from his interview with the London Times when he talked about how he despaired of what was happening in Africa and African populations. So you may have read about it. He, he managed saturation coverage in all the world's media um, again. Um, so that's who I worked for. I worked for him for a year. And then I went to work at the National Academy of Sciences, and I did stuff in cancer policy, tobacco policy, did one study on federal government funding of science, which was incredibly interesting, because we looked at, at Department of Defense, computing, engineering, all of the sciences, basically how does the United States make decisions about funding science. And it was just fascinating, because uh, it was a very high-level view of really important decisions. And the National Academy of Sciences is a an incredible place to work. If any of you go to graduate school or professional school or whatever, and you have an opportunity and you're interested in policy, they do have a like a three-month stint when you can go work at the National Academy of Sciences. And the National Academy is just extraordinary because U.S. science is so extraordinary now. And since World War II, for, for 50 years, it's coming to an end now. The rest of the world is probably going to catch up and surpass us during your lifetimes. But for a 40-year run, U.S. science was the world standard and has been the world standard. And the folks in American science who kind of rise to the top all become members of the National Academy of Sciences. And that's who you work with when you're doing your work as a staff person at the National Academy. So if you're doing a report on something, you can pretty much call anybody on the planet and say, do you want to help us write this report on X? And all the experts on X will say yes, um, because it's, a, it's usually an important question they care about, and it's really prestigious to, to, to work, work on these reports. And as staff, it's, it's a lot of bureaucracy, it's a lot of churning, but the scope and competence of the people that are involved in that process is just extraordinary. And it's an amazing social network. So over the course of, I, I worked there for 11 years, um, and that's what I was doing. I was perfectly happy at the National Academies when I was hired to come to Duke. Um, now why did I come here? Well, because it kind of felt when I came to Duke like it was the first place that I'd worked at where I might be able to do interdisciplinary work like I had at the Office of Technology Assessment. Because um, the National Academy of Sciences, because it's part of the academic apparatus, has the same flaws that most academic institutions have, which is everything's built in disciplinary silos. <coughs> it's actually quite difficult to do interdisciplinary work, even at the National Academies of Science. At the Office of Technology Assessment, we would be asked a question by a congressional committee, and they say, we want you to solve this problem. 
And in order to solve that problem, we would have to get lawyers and economists and social scientists and even a physician or a molecular biologist to work together. And we really did have to work together. We had to read each other's stuff and we had to interact and critique each other's work. And it was truly interdisciplinary. It felt like at Duke we might be able to do that in the structure because of the way they built up the Institute for Genome Sciences and Policy. So that's, that's w what I do, that's why I'm here. And I actually do want to just, so um, I want to sh shift gears and then open it up for anything that you guys want to talk about. The other thing <coughs> I want to talk about is really um, the Campus Culture Initiative stuff that I was engaged with until about a year ago. Um, and I'm really interested in Roundtable because I looked at your roster um, and there's some really extraordinary people in this, in this group. Um, and I'm also struck by the fact that you, I'm, I'm imputing this, I don't know if this is true, but I'm guessing that you guys as a group, because you lived together for three years, there's kind of a social coherence and uh, a social structure, which is actually what we were trying to create by making the recommendations that we did out of the Campus Culture Initiative. So just to explain the logic of that, it sounds like it's totally crazy. <coughs> and believably, I heard back from the people from Maxwell House and from Meyercourt. I haven't been to Roundtable before. You can also yell at me, because um, I was on the committee. Um, and, I was, and some of us were very worried about this. And we knew full well that we were going to be throwing out some babies with the bathwater in making the recommendation to disband selectives. But I'm very interested in your perspective on selectives. The logic that was behind it was that the social scene at Duke is so heavily dominated by the Greek scene, and in particular by the control of social spaces with common rooms like this that are associated with selectives, that independence and other social structures don't have any oxygen to thrive. So the idea was the only way, and there were, there were really vigorous arguments on the Campus Culture Initiative Committee, because we did not want to tear apart the selectives, or the Arts House, um, or the Baldwins. Um, what we did finally end up agreeing to was the only place we were ever going to be able to reconstruct social structures that were more coherent was to abolish all of the social structures because there was no way we were going to make an argument that we should get rid of the frats and their control of space and yet allow the other selectives to exist. It would just look really hypocritical. And that was the argument that won the day. And it was very hard fought. Um, <coughs> but that was the logic behind the recommendations. Now, of course, that went to Peter Lang and Dick Broadhead who, um, I think for two reasons, decided not to act on it. <coughs> One was that they didn't want to throw out those babies and the selective structure, the positive aspects of it. Even the frats have lots of positive structures and, and they do a lot of good stuff. Um, so you're destroying something of value if you go down that pathway. Um, the other was it's not clear to any of us that in fact any other social structures would come in to fill the vacuum. Um, and that was a concern, and I think that's why Dick and, uh, and Peter didn't go down that pathway. There's probably a third, which is a real risk of truly offending all of the alumni that are part of the frats and selectives that existed, 
and the danger to the financial structure of the university by pissing off a bunch of alumni <laughs> or your main constituency, right? So that probably also played into the calculations. Um, but I'm really interested in what your social experience is, what your experience, especially the seniors who've kind of gone through this. What, do you think we were incredibly dumb to make that recommendation? Uh, yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Without a doubt. The, the number one thing you said there was there, it's not clear that there's any social structure that would come in to fill the void. Um, and the way that Duke is set up, I, I, I like the whole freshmen live on East Campus, then you move to West Campus, but on East Campus, you're all new to the university, you're in these very discreet um, and s small enough dorm units that that becomes your social circle. I'm from Giles, I'm from GA, that's where I meet all my friends. People then come to West Campus their second year, they still have all their friends from Giles, only now they're scattered across West Campus and they don't bother meeting the neighbors. And part of that is that these quads are horrible. I mean, it looks like a brick alley with you yeah. know a roof over it. These buildings really look nice from the outside, but goddamn the inside they are. <laughs> they're just they're not conducive to forming social structures the same way the dorms on East Campus. The hallways are yeah. small, they're not carpeted, yeah. like people don't meet in the hallways and such. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, everything like people will close their doors and stuff. So. It, it's scattered. You you retain your friends from the year before, but you don't form new bonds through your dorm. Uh, the quad model is broken. It, it, it doesn't work. It's never worked. No one's going to associate with the I'm from Fuquad, I'm from Craven, I'm from Crowell. Um, so that was the hope. The same way that they that was the hope that is, that, that was the logic. Just yeah. to explain, the logic was we blow up all the social <coughs> structures that exist and then we kind of hope that if we pump resources and a few structures at the margin that encourage the quads to become the source of social identity, then all of that will happen in the context of the quad. I think it's too big. So you're saying it won't work. It's, it's too big. big. It's more than just like simply being too big. Like when we're freshmen, we're new to the university, so we're forced to make friends. And when we do make friends, we're in that environment where we're all on equal terms. When you come to sophomore year, you're not sitting in a like dorm full of freshmen. There are sophomores, juniors, and seniors. Everyone's busy, and most importantly, everyone else already has their own friends. So my friends are scattered across, you know, the West Campus and Central Campus. And like when I have like lab reports to do, I don't have the incentive to go out and meet neighbors and like learn to like get along with them. And like I've spent so much of my freshman year making friends already. I mean, I just can't simply take the time to do it all over again. And to find identity with with few quad, I mean. Well, that's where I live now, but truly my identity was with GA, you know, a freshman year, and so, which is the reason why I wanted to spend as many time, as much time as I could with those guys, so. Which year were you, are you a senior? I'm a senior. Oh boy, yeah, you were the party dorm that year, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> GA for the win. We had one or two problems. <laughs> Our third floor guys were rough. The rest of us no. were, were pretty good yeah. in GA. We had a lot of GA seniors in round table. Um, for did just a chance thing that happened that would were those the Diane Nelson years? Uh -huh. Yes. Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the, and another thing too is that you can maintain the social structures that you build on East Campus yeah. if you allow those dorms to have a designated spot on West to link to. But ever since that was abolished, I, I don't. And broken down to the smaller block models. That is one way to maintain a group of friends um, with a good-sized block on a hallway, 
but it's not going to connect one hallway to another. Um, the other thing is that, um, and we struggle with this as well, and even in the East Campus dorms, like we weren't just GA, we were second floor GA. Um, the difference between the, the, the floors is just this subtle structural change that really inhibits structure formation. We even have this in Roundtable. We, we struggle to, to get each floor to group together. Um, and, and, and we overcome it by doing event planning. But on a day-to-day -day basis, it's, it's rough if you live on the first floor to see people on the third floor and maintain those structures. The other thing, too, is that if you're looking for a, um, an organic social network to arise out of independence, you have to understand you're destroying the selective houses, most of which were originally founded with that intention from, from among the students. The intention of creating social structure. Yeah. And that, that was the mechanism to do it, because ostensibly the, the, the social structure was not naturally there because of, naturally within the structure of the quads. There's also, so, I feel like, something to be said about the fact that since Roundtable is student-organized, like, we organize our own structures ourselves. Like, we hold our rush, and, like, we invite people to come visit the dorm, and people who are in, who are mostly, who are exceptionally interested in the dorm get invited to live here the following year. The fact that we do that, like, all ourselves, like, puts so much, like, responsibility and, like, we put so much, like, into it that we have, you know, like, investment in this dorm and such where we wouldn't normally otherwise if we were just randomly placed in a few quad and then told by the administration that we were supposed to identify with this quad all these people we didn't know. I mean, like, the fact that we do hold the rush process, you know, is, is significant of how much we invest in here. How many of you are there, about 40? We currently have 53 people in, in section. section. We probably have another. And we probably have another 15 to 17 out of section. Plus so 20 so new about members. 60? Plus 20 new members. So. So right now, eighty. Right about eighty right so now. So now you're at eighty, but the eighty is eighty is with twenty new ones. So six. Twenty of those are on East Campus. Yeah. 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 Twenty of those are on East Campus. Another fifteen are not in section. They're either at UNC or abroad or off campus. So if so, one of the other ideas is take the social structures that exist, and this is actually I think what Peter would like to see happen, but I don't know whether it's going to work. Is to take the round tables, the Meyer courts, the Baldwins, and expand them so that they have more real estate and they are accommodating a larger fraction of... The thing that we were trying to respond to was two. One was very strong signals from students. It wasn't generated... I, I know it was perceived as being generated by faculty, but in fact the ideas were generated by students who came to the faculty. Um, one thing was that some of the social structures that exist are perceived as hostile. And some of the women in particular felt very strongly. And like the ones that live down over here who have to walk through this 1960s nightmare to get up to dinner. The, the architecture totally sucks for all sorts of reasons. But some of the women were especially very, they were just vehement about how awful it is to make their way up to eat every night. Um, they won't feel safe. It feels like they're wandering through a hostile territory on the way to, to dinner every night. That caught our that caught our attention. Um, so that was an argument for for 
trying to diminish the power of of uh, of that feeling. Um, Sir, if I may, sure. How did you think that abolishing the selectives would diminish the? It wasn't the selectives. That was the frats. <coughs> that was the frats, and it's when you're walking through frat space where they own the common room, they own the hallway, and if you have that, I mean, I I, I haven't done it a lot, although Elliot. Um, Elliot Wolf and Trish Bailey took us on a tour of West Campus one Thursday night at midnight, and we got a little bit of a flavor of it. Um, um, you know, we got to observe beer pong and um, you know the usual social activities of a of a Thursday night. So it is, and it is. I actually think it is true that there are parts of the architecture here that are really heavily dominated by a group that's that's not friendly to women. Um, I do think that's true. Yeah. I mean, I know you said you didn't want to treat selective living groups differently from fraternities, but right. I don't think it's such a bad idea because, first of all, fraternities have so much more funding. They have a national council to appeal to. You know, they can. They're on a different level as we are as far as competing in the assessment um, process. And secondly, there are huge differences. I mean, besides the obvious like sex differences. Um, between the two, and I don't think it's necessarily a bad idea, and I don't think the student body would necessarily react negatively towards treating them as two separate entities. I mean, the fraternities might cry bloody murder, but they're also the ones who get associated most readily with some of these negative. It's actually only some, and it's only some. Right. We, there, are, there are plenty of that's great the, that's the other. That's actually some, and it really was agonizing. Um, because it actually really is only some frats. Well, we have two different neighbors, and they're very different. Very, very, very different. Very different. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Good and bad? Yeah. Mm -hmm. yes. Darth Vader and... Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, think Darth Vader yes. after he Better and worse. tried to reform. <laughs> <laughs> Darth Vader post-Emperor kill. It's, it's, yeah, better and worse. Like, the, from here, the laundry room's directly diagonally, and you have to take two hallways either way, and I know I always go one way and not the other. So if, if we wanted to fix... So, and, and I'll tell you the other thing that we were trying to capture is actually maybe something that you've got. One of the other flaws of Duke's architecture, um, and that many of us who went to schools with a house system right. truly yeah. love is communal dinners, communal meals, that's, that was what drove my, I loved my last three years as an undergraduate. Um, and that's because it was, we had all of our intellectual discussions, all of our social functions rotated around meals. Mm -hmm. We would eat together and then 12 people would come up to my room and we'd make tea while we were procrastinating before we went to study. And then at you know, 7.30 or something, everybody would disband and you know, you reach that threshold when you feel guilty enough that you actually have to go do some work. Um, and we would do that every night. And it was incredibly lively because the experience of college is the faculty kind, you know, I mean, we're, we do something and we're part of the reason that you guys come here. But the main experience of college is your social network that you form when you're in college. And it's, the, it's those side conversations that actually are what in accumulation over four years is so incredibly powerful and memorable and should be. And that's what we were trying to create the space for. 
So where is that kind of experience? Now we can't do the meal thing here, um, but what we were hoping is things for that need to be a little bit bigger. Um, Sixty is probably of a scale where you could begin to have social coherence that's durable, lasts from from class to class. We were really trying to capture. We were trying to make it possible for the three-year vertical thing that you guys have. I think that most students at Duke do not have. Because it's, it's really chaotic, actually. If you think about it, most students here at Duke go freshman year east, sophomore year west, first semester junior year abroad, and then second semester junior year, whatever is left, um, plus senior year, you're either off campus or on central. So you got totally, in, in trying to imagine a social structure that coheres through that incredibly chaotic path is, is really, really hard. Um, and I think we've lost something there, and that's what we were hoping to create the space to, re to, to, to make that possible for at least those students who want to have that experience to have it. And there are, I mean, there are, what, a half, Meyercourt's roughly the same size, right? Mm -hmm. The Arts House is a little bit smaller. Um, there are groups that have are beginning to do that. The Baldwins, presumably after this year, their first senior year, they're going to have more or less the same kind of social structures that are available to them. But that is what we were trying to create more of. So yeah, how much of this idea of coherence came into play when they're trying to decide, like, the design of Central Campus? Especially since you are creating new, you know, buildings there, basically. You can kind of, like, build social structures around that. I may ask you to turn that off for this answer, just because this is something